So I am going to start with a scripture for the matters of the heart, Jeremiah 17, 9. And I apologize uh, that I didn't give a list back there. So I'll just call out the scripture as, as we get it. Um, so Jeremiah 17, 9, ESV, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Now, now as, as Christian people, right, as people trying to follow God, sometimes we might think the heart is deceitful, but we got to remember that, we're born in our carnal nature, and so in our carnality, the heart is absolutely deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I guess most people would say not many of us, but we'll do our best to try to do it. So I'm sure that uh, you all gathered that we're not actually talking about our physical heart, right? I mean, our physical heart is important, but the whole idea of the Matters of the Heart series is not trying to talk about our physical heart, but it's the heart that we're talking about is that mysterious, wonderful, confusing part of us that enables us to love, laugh, fear, and experience life. So uh, it's that thing that lets you feel that love when your child just comes up to you and hugs you and says, I love you, right? I mean, that's, that's, you, just, you just feel that emotion. It's, that special. it's also that thing that hurt you when that special person in school said, uh, I don't like you like that. I just want to be friends, right? So... That's the kind of heart. It's the sphere in which relationships happen and the sphere in which those relationships, unfortunately, can be broken. Now, over time, we develop habits that erode our heart's sensitivity. The inevitable pain and disappointments of life cause us to set up walls around our heart. And although they may be justifiable reasons and be totally understandable, in the end, it doesn't change the truth that our heart now becomes out of sync with the rhythm it was created to maintain. The things that disrupt our invisible heart, unfortunately, tend to linger. If left alone, some will even linger for an entire lifetime. After a while, we begin to accept these disruptors as part of us, part of our personality. We catch ourselves saying things like, eh, it's just the way I am. But you know what? you got to remember, you were not created that way. You weren't always that way. And sometimes when things happen later in life and they get there and they start to affect us, I will also say that the people that are closest to you also remember that you are not always that way. So the main question that we need to ask ourselves in the beginning of this Connect group is how are things with your heart? And again, we're not talking about the physical heart. How are things with that mysterious, unknown, hard to understand, spiritual, emotional heart? Really think for a minute. How are things with my heart? Not your career, not your family, not your finances, not individual relationships, not the effects, but really in my heart. So chances are, I would say, like I didn't, we, we don't really stop and consider that spiritual heart. After all, we have work to do, meals to prepare, bills to pay, appointments to keep. If at the end of the day we're all caught up with these things and someone asks us, how are things going or how are things, we can say fine. But this is different, a more important and even awkward question. How is it and how are you doing in your heart? 
And it's something that we have to stop and ponder sometimes because you know what? It's, it, it's not natural for us to monitor our spiritual heart. I mean, we even have to get a physical monitoring device to monitor our physical heart. And it's an awkward process. And they say, oh, go about your business as normal. While you have this thing attached to you, recording everything and all that, I'm going to do about normal. There ain't, ain't nothing normal about that. But, yeah, you're supposed to go about your normal activity in a non-normal way. But, you know, so it's even more unnatural because we're not used to monitoring a heart. What we're used to monitoring for is as children, we've always been taught to monitor our behavior. Monitor what comes out of our mouth. Control how we speak. Control how we act, no matter how we feel. That's what we get conditioned to monitoring. What are my observable effects, not how is it really with my heart? After all, all society teaches us if we behave good, good things happen. If we behave badly, well, bad things happen. We have a way to help correct you in that. It doesn't matter how you feel as long as you behave properly. And this ain't a, a, a scripture directly that we have, but we all know, right, that, that the Bible even tells us, be ye angry and sin not. So wait, we're emotional beings, right? We understand. We're going to have emotions. Things are going to happen. And just because I get mad at my boss doesn't mean I'm justified and right to punch him out or worse, curse him out. I mean, I can. I have every right and ability to as an American citizen. Now, I also have every right and ability to deal with the consequences that occur in that process. But so we know in certain situations, regardless of how we feel, we control our actions. We control our words. We control our speech. But I'm not talking about the things that come on you suddenly. It's the things that if they're not watched and we don't monitor the heart, that they go from just coming on us temporarily to lodging within our heart and then becoming a problem that lingers. So we think as long as we say the right thing, do the right thing, guess what? That must mean all is well within my heart. But eventually those things that cause issues in our heart we will become larger than our ability to perform, and they will begin to seep into our actions, our character, and then, unfortunately, into our relationships. So maybe you've already noticed things, either within yourself or with others, that start to slip a little bit. Maybe you've always been able to contain your anger, but lately there just seems to be an edge in your voice. Or maybe those occasional outbursts that slip through your normal ironclad facade are happening more and more frequently. You know you want to be glad when others share with you their promotion or raise and extra blessings from the Lord, but for some reason you say it outwardly, but deep down you know, why am I not glad for them? Why, why am I not glad for that? Maybe that's a past hurt where someone else received the thing you wanted but never got. And now that resentment or jealousy continued to grow unchecked and unnoticed. And now when others get those things, it's getting harder to be glad for them, even though you have nothing against them and you know there is no reason why I shouldn't be happy that they've now got that. You know you shouldn't be bothered by some things, but sometimes... Yet, you know, they do bother you. So think about this. These are just the symptoms of a deeper struggle. Your heart is under assault, but we may be losing that battle as we were never taught to keep a close monitor on our heart, just our outward actions. So we take the scripture that Jesus said, which I do have, uh, Sterling, I appreciate it, Matthew 12, 34 through 35. Now, this is Jesus, remember, answering the Pharisees. 
This is when they questioned him on, wait a minute, how come your disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate? You know, which is only a man's tradition. It wasn't actually God's uh, law. And Jesus actually tells them, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Great scripture and absolutely true, but we tend to look at that scripture under the eyes of our past conditioning and what we've been used to our whole life that says, as long as the actions and words that I control that come out, I must be good in my heart. But it didn't say it's the words and actions that you change in your mind before, they, before you speak them. That first thought when the person gets a promotion and you're like, why you? Why him, Lord? But that is not what you speak. You control yourself. Oh, I'm so glad for you, brother. I'm so glad for you, sister. That's just awesome. But you know deep down that wasn't what initially was coming out. That's not what initially came to mind. So we got to be careful that even though we're able to put on the facade, control it, that doesn't mean that's not truly, that that's truly what's coming out of it. That's the symptoms to keep an eye out for to monitor our heart. But again, we're not used to monitoring it, only our behavior. But if our heart is fully good and there are no issues at all or things for us to take notice of to work on, then think about this. What caused that slip? What caused that outburst? What caused that action of behavior where, you know, we've all done it. We say things like, oh, that's not me. I can't believe I just said that. Or actually me, it's always like, yeah, I can believe I did that, you know, because I'm just a knucklehead. And Teresa said, oh, I definitely can believe you did that. But, uh, you know, we all hear people, right, or they say, like, you know, oh, I don't know where that came from. Or my favorite is, wow, that came out of nowhere. Unfortunately, actually, it came from within. We just weren't pre-aware of it till we were no longer able to control our behavior or action. In our physical heart, right, we can, we can find blockages, but there are still hidden, issue, hidden issues that can go unnoticed for years if we have no seemingly related symptoms that show themselves. For instance, unless a certain test are run like an arteriogram where they actually inject a, jo- uh, the, inject a dye into you, they take an x-ray, and they make a visible picture of where actually the dye is going, following the, the veins, following the arteries, and then they can see exactly where the blockage stopped. Now, once that blockage is found, then a skilled cardiologist is able to insert a stent through an artery in the leg, work their way all the way up to the blockage, up to the blood vessel, open it up, and then once again allow the blood to flow through to that blocked or damaged area of the heart. Now, if symptoms show of the blocked heart, directly related to that, then, of course, people, oh, wow, I got to go get, I got to go get checked. I got to go do. But what if the symptoms don't show themselves as being related to the heart issue? They may show themselves as something unrelated, like back pain or indigestion, not being able to sleep, loss of appetite, nausea. All these things could be treated as its own separate, isolated case and in no way reflect the idea that it was an issue and a matter of the heart. So we take medication, we do things to supposedly treat these totally unrelated, isolated symptoms, meanwhile ignoring the fact that, hey, actually, it's a matter 
of the heart. So by treating the symptom, we now allow that hidden issue to continue to grow and worsen. And unfortunately, we can tend to do that with our spiritual or emotional heart. We'll treat the outward thing that comes from, you know, comes from within, from that unhealthy heart. We treat the symptom of it. We, we treat the action. We treat the behavior. Oh, I got to guard myself better. I got to watch it more, whatever. Instead of trying to now delve deeper, where did that come from? What is the hidden issue that this is speaking to that is there? Because now unchecked, we haven't taken care of the root cause, and we now have a potential that, that that's now lodged within our heart has, can destroy and squeeze the life out of us and even damage our most valuable and most important relationships. So the goal of this connect group is that we try to expose our hearts to the light of God, the spiritual x-ray, if you will, using God's truth as the die to expose the blockages in those areas that we need to take care of. So to aid in this during the course of the uh, uh, Connect group, we're going to try to identify the most common blockages, their causes and their symptoms. So we're going to look at four primary things that can become a matter of the heart, four life-blocking agents that become lodged in our hearts for various reasons. Now, each of these has the potential to erode your relationship, your character, and if left unchecked, it will actually erade and knock out your faith. And you're like, oh, no, that can't happen. Um, we all know people that you think, oh, no way, they're strong, they're solid as a rock. And they were until they weren't. Until all of a sudden, wait a minute, they can no longer control that facade, and now it started showing visible, but yet the symptoms of it were really happening for a long time before. It's just now it got to the point that they couldn't control their actions and their words, and they finally were no longer able to keep up the charade. So, but the positive thing in this is that as they're exposed, we'll look at the in new habits and spiritual disciplines that will actually then be able to unblock the heart, to take care of it. It allowed Jesus, our master physician, to do some spiritual stints to restore that damaged, unaccessible area, and then keep our heart in rhythm with him. I know up to this point, it sounds pretty heavy, and for those of you that didn't actually sign up for Matters of the Heart and said, well, I just got stuck here because I didn't sign up for nothing else, so I'm in the main building. So I know it sounds harsh. I know it sounds heavy, right? I know it sounds, because believe me, it was heavy on me in, in, in trying to put this together and try to keep a, a woo like, you know, I'm like, Okay, Lord, what's wrong with me? Let me know, please, you know? So I know it sounds heavy, and I know it may seem kind of like a hard task, but wait a minute. How many of us honestly and truthfully wouldn't want to know if there are some things that got lodged in my heart that is actually affecting my relationship with my wife and over time will actually erode it to where I don't even realize what's happening, and next thing you know, there's all kind of issues, right? Or eroding my faith in God. Or, or, or as I'm actually going to share at the end, that the Lord revealing things to me to realize it may not be a major issue, but you're not as effective as you could be even in me. And so we want to know those things, right? So let me give you a little bit of encouragement with Ezekiel 36, 26. So I don't care at this point if you think you are the most angriest person in the world, that you have no love for nobody, you can't stand the world, you can't stand everyone, everybody owes you, and you deserve everything, think about whatever the worst case scenario you want, God is actually telling his people, I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, that's encouraging to me. That's exciting. Like, wait a minute. Even if I think my heart is so far gone that the entire thing is a rock. God said, don't worry about that. I'll just give you a new one. Slide it over. Here's a new one. Oh, wait. You only got areas that are damaged? That's nothing. God can just do the stamp. And then the blood comes back and, and brings back to life. But an interesting thing about this scripture, in thinking about it, this promise was given to the children of Israel, obviously Ezekiel, from the Old Testament, right? Now, the new spirit, of course, we know he's talking about even in the future with the Holy Spirit, right? But think about this. This scripture was given as a promise to a people which are already had been given the top ten things to do to control their behavior and their actions. What we said was we've been learning this whole time in our life we control our actions, we control our words, and that means we have the good heart. But God's telling his people, I'm going to give you a new heart and replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, even though you already have my top ten commandments on how to actually have the right actions and the right words and to do it the right way. So he knew that even in that, that eventually they would need a new heart that would be able to keep pace with their outward obedience. See, they could follow the Ten Commandments and the outward obedience, but they were never getting to the point to understand it's all about the heart. It's not about just obeying these commands. It's about what's truly in the heart. That's what Jesus had such an issue with the Pharisees was that it wasn't that they didn't keep the law of Moses. They then added a whole bunch of extra laws, which were not a problem. They said, look, if you can't do, if we say, okay, you can't exchange, you know, money on the Sabbath, well, then we'll just make it where you can't do anything on the Sabbath, and therefore, they'll never get to the point to do that. And that's the same thing that happened with the, the wash your hand. You know, God said that you watch what you bring in, that you don't eat certain foods. Don't eat anything unclean. So they went the next step. You also didn't want to become ceremonially unclean by what you touched or what you ate. So they went the next step and added a whole bunch of extra rules to say you wash your hands all the way from the tip of your fingers to the elbow before you eat. So that if you did come in contact with something that was similarly unclean, now you cleanse yourself and all that. So they did extra laws ahead. The problem was they put their laws now above God's laws because they didn't realize the laws to help govern the heart. When you have trouble doing the actions, it's because the heart isn't right. So it was supposed to help point to their heart issue that, okay, God, I need to fix my heart. Then it'll be easier to do the 10 actions of the commands. So... We all understand, and we all know, right, that what God started in us when we were first saved is not complete at this moment, and it, wasn't, it definitely wasn't complete at the first moment, and it definitely ain't complete at this moment, right? I mean, we're, we're, a, constant, we're a constant work, right? Like we'll say, you know, God's still working on me, you know, to make me what I ought to be. Took him just a week to make me, right? You don't know that song. Okay. So, uh... <laughs> Teresa said, I know he's still working on you, for sure. But the, uh, and, uh, you know, some of us have harder heads than others, so it takes me longer to learn things. So, you know, Lord has to take sometimes what other people do in one, one lesson. I take three or four or five. But, you know, I got to keep repeating. But, you know, eventually I get there, you know. It, it's not given to the swiftest, right, but those that, that endure to the end, right? So all I got to do is endure it. As long as I make it to the end, it don't matter if I was the first one through the class. As long as I get there, I'm there. Anyway. 
All right. So we may have had, through the baptism of his spirit, have Jesus come in our heart, come in our life, right? And we give him access to our heart. But did we really give him access to every area of the heart with no limitations, right? Or is there certain areas that, wait a minute, this is kind of reserved. And we don't even know it. We don't even realize it, but it's based on the things that we've gone through, things that have happened in that process. So we understand that we get excited about forgiveness, right? I mean, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That excites me. That means that, that I have the ability, as the scripture says, to come boldly in his presence. Not of my own accord, nothing to do with me because it's unmerited favor. It's his grace. But God forgave me and gave me the opportunity that I could come to him, right? So we know and we get excited about that. But maybe that's a reason that we don't give him access to or a symptom that we don't give him access to all areas of our heart is it explain that. We're very happy about being forgiven, but, you know, we're not quite as happy and excited about forgiving others, right? That can be a matter of a heart. We could be excited about the success we're experiencing, but like we said before, we may not be quite as excited about the success that someone else is enjoying. Again, that could be a matter of the heart. So both could be evidence that we're still a work in progress. There's still some hard work that needs to be done. But to help keep you encouraged through the process let me remind you this. No matter what stage gets uncovered or you realize, wow, you know, this is pretty far gone in this area. Or this is far gone in this area. And wow, I've been really good at my, my behavior and controlling the, the behavior. But, but I do have, I can tell now, I got a couple things I got to get worked out. And the Lord's going to help me work it out. No matter what stage you're in, just keep this in mind. Whatever condition of your heart is right now, it didn't happen overnight. Things got lodged, and they took time to build up, to take root, to, to produce its effect. So just like that, you can't necessarily overcome it immediately overnight. So if the effects of years of blockage caused by either guilt, anger, greed, or jealousy, adopting new habits of the heart is a process. But to encourage you, it is a process that can start to yield some immediate results. Even in the, the idea of the Lord putting the stint and opening up that blood vessel, it's not an immediate recovery that whoop, the entire area of the heart is now fully restored. It takes time for the blood to flow. It takes time for it to start to rework that part of the muscle. It eventually works through and the blood continues to nourish. The blood continues to bring it back to life. And now that area of the heart over time becomes stronger and better even though it was completely damaged before. But it's a process. But just like that, someone could feel totally energized immediately when a stint happens. And that's the encouragement that over time it's going to get even better and we'll continue to, to, to go through it. So the goal that we have is to strengthen our resolve through the immediate payouts to then continue the resolve to keep cultivating these new habits until we arrive at the place where our Lord Jesus uh, desires us to be and made us to be to fulfill his purpose his calling, and to stay in rhythm with his heart. So that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do, you know, in this process. So how many of y'all are from Louisiana? We got a pretty good amount, okay? So being from Louisiana, I think a lot of us, if not most of us, have heard of the name Pete Maravich or, or Pistol Pete, right? Okay? So long before there was a Dr. J or a Magic or an Air Jordan, there was a Pistol. Pistol Pete Maverick. Uh, Maverick. 
He was a, a, a skinny white guard from LSU who treated the basketball court like a stage. I mean, he was flamboyant. He was one of the first ones that decided to take street ball with all of its showmanship and bring it onto a organized court, right? And so he actually was told one time by the uh, uh, legendary coach Lefty Dressel, he said, hey, the great Oscar Robinson succeeded without a single flamboyant pass. And Maravich responded that he wanted to be a millionaire, and they don't pay you a million dollars for a two-handed chess pass. And I will tell you, his first drafted team, he made a million six, and that was back in, like, 1968. So, yeah, 1970. So, yeah, he hit it with ink. But the idea is Pistol Pete is quoted on ESPN as saying, if I have a choice whether to do the show or throw a straight pass and we're going to get the basket anyway, I'm going to do the show. Pistol Pete was coached in college at LSU by his father. Now, catch this. He still has the standing Division I records for the highest overall scoring of 44.5 points a game. Just as a, a, a curiosity, everybody's familiar with the name Michael Jordan. His highest in, in college was a 20.0 average for the season per game. Pistol Pete was 44.5. The next closest one to him was uh, like 32 uh, points per game for the whole average of the season. So he still holds that record. He also holds the record for the most total points of his entire college career at 3,667 points. The closest one to him, which almost beat him, was Antoine Davis. We've kind of heard that name maybe recently of y'all in sports. Now, he had 3,664, and he missed a three-point buzzer shot, which, of course, would have tied him with his last game of his thing. But this is what makes it more outstanding. When Pistol Pete played, one, there was no three-point line. Every shot was only two. Also, they had no shot clock. There's a shot clock now that limits that you can only hold the ball, hold the ball so long. Back then, the team could hold it as long as they wanted, which meant he'd have less offensive possessions and chances to score, yet he still scored 44.5 and higher per game. Also, his all-time record for total points scored, when he went to college, you were not allowed to play varsity ball your first year. You had to pay non-varsity, so none of your stats counted. He only had three years, and he hit 3,667 career points that still holds today. Antoine Davis, three points short, had five years. Five years. Everybody else that's even in the 3,000s had four years. He did it all with no three-point, all that. He was amazing. When you watched him on the court, he, threw, he flung it around. He twisted I mean, he was nonstop acrobatic. I mean, he brought it every time. It was electrifying. When he came out, people got excited. So he was so in shape, so, you know, just awesome on the court. Um, he was real thin, fantastic physical shape, so he wasn't overweight or nothing. Maravich looked as if he could play straight for days, never tiring as he wowed the fans and players alike with his street ball style. But think about this. On January 5th, 1988, only a few years removed from playing grueling 70-plus games of schedules in the NBA, he was playing a pickup basketball game, three-on-three, three, with a group that included focus on the family head, James Dobson, because he was supposed to appear on the radio that day. He collapsed and he died of a heart attack at age 40. This physical specimen that could score so much in a game 
it, there, there was actually, you know, one of his games in the pros, he scored over like 64 points in a game. You, you don't score that and you're not on the court a long time. He's running with professional men, keeping up this whole time, and yet he died at age 40 in a pickup basketball game with no one of that caliber and level. An autopsy revealed that his death was due to a previously undiagnosed congenital heart defect. He'd been born with only one coronary artery instead of the normal two. But because he was so physical and so good, never tired, never wavered, never slowed down, was always in control of his actions physically and all that, no one thought he might have a heart issue. And stories like this, pictures of seemingly perfect athleticism, who tragically and suddenly dropped dead of a heart attack at a relatively young age, have to cause us to grips with the sobering truth. A person's physical prowess doesn't always reflect the health of his or her heart. Determining someone's cardiovascular health by merely observing what they do, their physical ability, can be fatal. So conversely, think about it. You probably know someone whose idea of a well-balanced meal is a box of donuts, but they mix it with a Diet Coke, right? And their heart is miraculously in mint condition, just keeps on ticking no matter how they treat it, right? But the main point is, just like in the physical, our outward behavior is not an accurate indicator of what's going on inside. So we apologize for our inappropriate behavior at times. We promise it won't happen again, and we really mean it, but it happens again. We keep trying to focus on the symptom, the action, the behavior, and we never look beyond it to try to find the cause. Wait a minute. Jesus said it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. What's going on in my heart that I'm not aware of? What's happening? We may even have good excuses as to why it keeps happening. You know, it's, it's, it's how we grew up. It, it was, you know, our parents. It was our upbringing. It was how things are going on right now at work, right? We can have all kinds of reasons. But if the source was merely behavioral habits, we would have already conquered them. If our solution was just to try harder and control it better, we already would have done it. We view our out-of-character outburst as an exception. And I will say, yes, it is an exception. But it's an exception of what we allow now that's in our heart to be exposed to the rest of the world. Not an exception to what's actually going on on the inside. It's just every once in a while, our heart goes public. And we lose the ability to control it and keep it under wraps. So the biggest issue for all of us is eventually what's in our heart comes out. But the downside is most of the time, that's at home with the people that are closest to us, the ones that we love us. It don't happen on the job. It don't happen on the golf course. It don't happen in the store with the, the cashier or whatever. But because we're now in our safe environment, we're in our home, we can let our guard down. We cannot watch so much of what's coming out and how we react. So now all of a sudden, all of these things fester up, but it's affecting now my home relationships and the things that matter the most to me. And now our loved ones can't understand that what's going on. Whoa, you don't talk to people that work like that because it's a matter of the heart. There's something going on that the symptom is coming out, and that's what we're going to try to do is try to help those scenarios and help those situations that we could try to say, Let's fix it at the root. Let's take care of it and not worry about the symptom. So you notice saying that we hurt the ones we love and we love, you know, hurt the ones we love the most. 
So we need to make that change from the inside out, not just our behavior. So, again, I made a reference to it. Matthew 15, 18 through 19, we'll read it. Now, remember, this is Jesus. But what, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart, look at this. Now, okay, do we realize this is Jesus Christ talking? This is God, the creator of man, robed in flesh, so he knows what he's talking about. He knows what the creation is. And he said, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, fault, witness, and slander. Now, you can try to disagree all you want, but I think Jesus probably would know what can come out of our hearts, right? So Proverbs 4 and 23 by Solomon says, keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance. Guard your heart, not your actions. Guard your heart. Don't let things take root. Don't let things lodge there. It's one thing to feel it. It's another thing to become it. And, and Therese always shares with me, there, there's a, uh, you know, listen to different sermons and podcasts, the concept, it's okay to feel angry, but you don't become angry. It's okay to feel hurt. But don't become hurt. Don't take on the persona of I am now this. No, I feel it, but I'm not going to allow it to take root in my heart and begin to fester. I'm going to be vigilant because guess what? For from it flow the springs of life. So we all experience some level of hurt, rejection, some more than others. As a result of these unpleasant realities, things can become lodged in our hearts. We've heard expressed you know, things like people say, oh, I'll never love again. I, I don't need anybody. They wounded me. They broke my heart. Or we say someone is hard-hearted, right? Or you'll never get close to them. They have walls. They have trust issues. Oh, they're cold. So no one wants to be hurt. And when we feel pain, especially if it's repeated, we develop a natural coping mechanism so it won't hurt us again. And over our lifetime, we receive our jabs from our friends, our parents, our teachers, coaches, adversaries, there's no way to avoid it. It's going to happen. And then sometimes we all then carry the story and we have the scars of where people hurt us. But it's what we do with it and how we let it take hold or not take hold or guard it with vigilance that's going to help us out. So sometimes we are our own worst enemy and we keep secrets which set up walls, affect our relationships. Later that becomes guilt and it carries into our relationships. So a similar thing can happen with shame. So just remember, we can't control how people treat us. You ain't going to do it. You can't stop hurtful words. Not going to do it. But we can monitor the effects they have on our heart. We're not used to it. We, we, we haven't been trained that way. But we can monitor the effect it has on our heart. And perhaps as we proceed and see, we can then let the Lord show us with his light of truth and get those spiritual habits and those new things that now we can reverse the damage and then keep our hearts free from further destructive debris. So we all have issues that impact relationships, the ability to maintain intimate relationships. The old adage is true. Hurt people, hurt people. But we could also had who then hurt other people who then hurt even more people, right? So life can definitely affect us in multiple ways. It can take the legs right from under your faith. It can cause all kind of issues and that's what we want to watch ours. So there's four primary blocking agents that we're going to look at that can get lodged. These corrosive agents 
uh, gain strength from darkness. This is the key. It's one thing to know it's not there, but their greatest ally is secrecy. So once we can expose it, once the light of truth can expose it, the light of truth is what kills it. The light of truth is how we get rid of it. The light of truth is how we force it to lose its power over us as we expose it to the light of truth. Now, those four agents are guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Now, they may not seem like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but almost every conflict and relational womb that we've experienced can usually be traced back to one of those four. So each of the four is fueled by a single dynamic, and it, it seems odd at first, but as you think about it, it makes sense. It's a dynamic that makes it so problematic. Understanding the dynamic is the first step in then making and rendering these monsters powerless. So guilt, anger, greed, jealousy, each result in a debt-to-debtor relationship. Each of those cause a debt-to-debtor relationship, and they cause an imbalance within the relationship. So, for instance, if you owe someone money, right, or vice versa, and you know it, that no matter what else is going on, if y'all are together in the room, that debt is always hanging over y'all in that room. It's just, it's always there. So, unfortunately, emotional and relational debt accrues interest exponentially. Dysfunction and tension compound daily until the weight of that debt makes Washington, D.C. look like they're fiscally responsible, which, you know, that's impossible. That's how bad it could get for you. So there's only two ways to resolve that kind of tension. Either somebody has to pay or somebody has to cancel the debt. It's a debt-to-debt relationship. With no debt, there's not a problem in a relationship. It's balanced again. So we either have to pay or someone has to cancel. As long as the debt's unpaid or unforgiven, the debt now covers the relationship. So an, an aspect of guilt is I owe you. So some, some nouns are, are, are so used so much that they actually become like a verb. Like we say we Googled something. Well, Google's a noun. It's a thing. But we Googled it. And you say, hey, we, we make a Xerox copy on our Canon copiers. Right? So, so we're now having a noun. So guilt is that way. How many times have we been guilted into action? How many times do we guilt others into acting into the way we want. Guilt is actually a noun, but it's been the cause for many actions and reaction. Guilt says, I owe you. The wrongs we do can be restated as almost like an act of theft. Like as an example, consider a man that runs out on his family, gets, gets together with another woman and leaves. You don't think right away that that's an idea of theft. But what happens is he stole the marriage relationship from his wife, he stole her reputation as a wife. He stole the parent's father, I mean the kid's father. He stole family meals. He stole Christmas. He stole family get-togethers. He stole everything from them. And at first the man just thinks, no, it's what I got. I get this new relationship and I get free from that. But what he forgets is that the first time his daughter looks at him and says, how come you don't love mommy anymore? All of a sudden it sinks into the heart. And now he realizes I'm guilty and I owe now they have a debt-to-debtor relationship, and there's no way he can pay the debt. So now he overcompensates by either providing materialism or, or becoming the buddy instead of the father. Because he also loses moral authority because, remember, the power is to the person who holds the debt, not the debtor. So the dad now that owes the debt to the kids no longer feels he can operate as father. 
he no longer has the currency of authoritativeness. So he has to just sit back and watch while they make one destructive decision after another, after another, after another, and just keep trying to then provide materialism to make up for it or friend or buddy because I, gotta, I owe them. I got to make it up to them. Make what up? Make what up? How do you give back the 12 years when, when you left your boy at 12 and he's now 24? How do you make up his dad missing for 12 years? You'll never make it up. You can't. It's a debt-to-debt relationship. We can go down and, and further in other things. The problem is that IOU, unfortunately, because the people try to flee from those they owe, like if someone owed you 50 bucks or 100 bucks or 200 bucks, and you've been asking them for payment, are they going to come around you? You ain't going to see them. They're gone. Like, you got to track them down, right? They ain't coming. Well, over time, as this feeling of debt grows and they feel like they can't pay it, they become less and less active in the relationship, compounding it even further because they don't want to be in that come around where the debt is. It makes a feel. So, un unfortunately, the IOU now affects the person that's owed, not because now they still don't have their dad coming around. So that's an idea of guilt. Now, we got an idea. Another one is anger. Now, anger says, you owe me. Guilt says, I owe you. Anger says, you owe me. It don't seem like it, but we get angry when we don't get what we want. And we may not fully agree with it, but we may feel like we deserve something, and then we don't get it, so we get angry about it. Because after all, who doesn't want something they deserved, right? So you can think of the illustration of the man leaving the family, the family would now have anger issues, and it's to be expected because something was stolen from them. So now you owe me. So now there's that whole dynamic now happening from the other side. Again, a debt-to-debtor relationship. So at this point, what if the dad tried to convince them, well, I had to leave because mom never blah, 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 and she always blah, 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 blah. You know how she is, blah, blah, blah. But guess what? Now he just caused in that family the mom to owe them too because now they feel so we all know someone who verbalized it this way. You took my reputation, stole my family, took the best years of my life, robbed me. You owe me a second chance. The point is that that root anger can become from an idea of someone stole something or someone owes me. So the realization is this, is that even justifiable anger and hurt feelings now in the end give that person power over us. Because we may think we're good, and we kind of move on, and now we control our actions. We control how we speak to them. We control how we react around them. So we got good on controlling our actions, but every time we think about it, something flares up, something happens, or it affects other relationships. So now that person, that even though you're justified, they now continue to have power over you because the anger that you hold in your heart will now continue to influence your life and every relationship that you have. Because our past does not need to control our future. Even justifying our behavior, remember, don't actually excuse it. You may think it's a reason, but it's still not excused. And so as that happens with us, something that can, that can be totally unrelated reminds us of that individual that we're carrying that anger for. Now that anger becomes displaced to this person in this relationship, even though it had nothing to do with them. And they don't even know why. We don't even know why. I just know, man, that got me mad, right? And some of us, some people have stories that'll tell you, oh, no, you know, oh, yeah, they did this to me, but I, I don't want to talk about it. Well, why not? 
tell me your story. Why, why, why have you been angry like that all this time? Oh, no, no, it's too much. I, I ain't going to talk about it. Like, well, well, tell me. Well, maybe the reason why some don't want to share their story is because they realize, eh, it's pretty thin. It's pretty flimsy. And you're going to say, you've been carrying and harboring this anger all these years over that? Are you kidding me? But we want to stay justified in it. So I'm going to close out with, uh, and, and I had to skip a whole lot, as I'm sure y'all could tell, but, uh, with something, but I think y'all get the premise, right? So the, the, four, the four aspects, and, and like I said, Sister Trudy will, will finish up, um, is the idea that, that we got to watch those four things, guilt, anger, uh, greed, and jealousy. And we may think on the surface, I don't battle any of those. They're hidden. Remember, like, like the little things that pop up can do it. So I want to share something, and I want to give you some encouragement through sharing one of my own stories about cleaning out some things that got lodged in my heart. And I'm going to tell you, I didn't even know it was there, and I didn't know it was actually affecting me. I thought I was totally good. I was beyond it, but it obviously was. So when Andre was a baby, uh, during the time we dedicated him, I was given an ivy to commemorate, uh, uh, wait, uh, to commemorate his dedication from someone I was very close with. Now, over the years, I kept that ivy. I tended to it. And it, it held special meaning to me. I still have that ivy today. But unfortunately, life events have happened. And then as one relationship often ties into with another relationship, these life events negatively affected that relationship as well as others. And now two of my closest relationships became a significant source of hurt for me. One of them was the person that gave me the ivy that all these years I've kept and attended to and take care of. And it meant something. It was a commemoration to me at the time when Andre was dedicated. So last April, so this was just last April. So I'm, I'm telling myself here. Last April, I was preparing my lesson in the Winter Day series, and the Lord started dealing with me personally on one of the concepts I was covering, which was own the past or the past will own you. The core concept was that you must own the past. Own it, but all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because if you don't own it and all of it, it will soon own you. So that lesson was on my mind. I was watering my ivy. And as I saw it, the Lord asked me, why do you still have that ivy? Why haven't you thrown it out? After all, it came from that person who you now feel hurt you. Why you still got it? It's a constant reminder of his hurt. My answer was, no way. That's my ivy. No one's taken that away from me. I cared for it all these years. I tended to it. I know what it means to me. The point is, what the ivy represents to me now, and it didn't matter how I feel about the person who gave it to me, it's what that means to me now. Then the Lord asked me this thought-provoking question. So why aren't you doing that with every other good thing you got from that person throughout the relationship over the past years before it went sour? You're holding on to the ivy, you're keeping the ivy because of what it means to you. So why are you throwing away everything else good that you got at the time? Just because now the relationship is not the same. So in effect, why are you throwing out the baby with the bathwater? I immediately felt God's grace and compassion, but I also felt convicted at the same time for harboring. No, actually, the feeling was more like conviction 
for nurturing the hurt I felt, feeding it, if you will, so I could keep justifying my feelings and my actions to others regarding it. So the Lord kept working on me, and it wasn't long that I was going to a conference and realized that the two main people that I had been nurturing that hurt from was going to be there. I won't bore you with all the details, but I'll fill in enough. And suffice it to say, the Lord woke me up at 2 a.m. the morning before the conference, and we had some in-depth negotiations. By negotiations, I mean the Lord told me what he wanted me to do, and then I just argued and kept re-explaining why I was justified and how I felt, you know. Now, I will say, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know why, the Lord actually didn't respond to any of my comments and my statements. He just stayed silent on the other end, like, like wait a minute, Lord, did it be disconnected? Did you hear me? I'm justified in, in, in how I feel. He didn't respond other to continue to press on me of what I was supposed to do. So now, in my human brain, the Lord was being totally unreasonable. As he actually wanted me to apologize to them, even though he certainly knew it was all their issue and I was merely caught in it and reacted by it, right? So I finally relented and said, fine, I'll say this, Lord. There were things that you did that hurt me, and I know there were things that I did that hurt you, and for that I'm sorry. There you go. Uh, Okay, okay, I'll give in. I mean, that seemed pretty reasonable to me, right? I'm only stating that they hurt me in case they didn't know it. But I acknowledge that I know there were things I did to hurt them. And okay, for that, I apologize. No answer from the Lord. Just continued pressing. Then the thought came to me that if you say they hurt you in any way, they will tune you out and this whole statement is for naught. 2 a.m., this is what's going on, right? This is all through, through the night. I finally relented and said, okay, I won't mention they're hurting me. I'll just say there are things that have hurt me, and I know there are things that hurt you, and I apologize for that. Okay, well, surely it could be okay to just say there were things, right? Because, I mean, everybody knows things happen. So I figured that ended that, and I could go back to sleep. Nope. Now the Lord pressed on me some more. And that what I agreed to do so far, he was okay with. That was good. But now he hit me with the next level. He said, more importantly, I want you to thank them for all the things that they did that you felt blessed you. So wait a minute. It wasn't bad enough that I couldn't mention they hurt me. I had to just keep it things hurt me, not to expect or seek an apology back. Now I had to actually thank them. What about all the good, all the good I did for them in our relationship? Why do I have to thank them? Shouldn't they thank me? Pressing, pressing. I finally relented, but I set this stipulation to the Lord. The Lord, you'll have to arrange us meeting after the event, away from other people, then I would do it. Because after all, I felt in the end it would help me and release me with that knowledge. And for my benefit, I was now willing to do it. But after. Okay, God, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll apologize. I'll say thank you. Because in the end, I know it will help me. It will benefit me. I've read enough things. Talked about, okay, fine. Yet, Lord, you want to bless me through it, so I'm going to do it. So, but you got to make sure it happens at the end. And, and away from everybody else. So, you know. So you have to understand, though, that this was a major hurt for me. This was a big deal. This was not some little on-the-fly thing. If I told the full story, many would say you're totally justified for how you feel. 
We totally understand it. So now to keep my nerve and make sure I didn't deviate from my wording or pause, which may then cause me to stop or speak different words because I'm hard-headed, I typed out what I would say, and for several hours on the way to the conference, I kept memorizing and speaking it and memorizing and re-speaking it and memorizing it so that I could just go from start to finish without pause, without stop. And this is how my final statement was. There are things that have hurt me, and I know there are things that have hurt you, and I apologize for that. But most importantly, I want to sincerely thank you for all the things that I feel have blessed me. Thanks, and be blessed. Then I knew after I said it, I was just to walk away, not expect a response, or even stand around and make things awkward like I'm waiting for them to give me an apology or a thank you. Because if it wouldn't have come, my hard-headedness and stubbornness would have been put, fine, you can't, you can't acknowledge, I'll take it back, you know? So, so again, I was okay in a sense because I thought it'd be at the end. You know, the Lord would have to arrange it. I'd run into him at the end. And after all, you know, Maybe it'd be like Abraham and Isaac, where the Lord wouldn't worry about arranging it at the end. And he just wanted to see if I'd be willing to do it. So at the end, if I didn't see him around, I wouldn't have to do it. So I'm like, okay, cool, right? Like, okay, Lord, you just want to test me. Would I be willing? Okay, so if I don't see him at the end, we're good. Well, as you can tell, I thought wrong. It was the beginning of the conference, and lo and behold, I saw both of them, and they were close right there where I could get to them. Of course. So now the Lord reminded me that I said I was willing to make the statement to them because in the end, I felt it would benefit me. The Lord reminded me of that. Now remember, I was hesitant every stage. The Lord got through this wall. I relented. He got me to the next wall. I relented. He got me to the next wall. He didn't argue with me. He just kept pushing until I agreed, and he got me every step of the way. So now the Lord reminded me that he said, you are willing to make the statement because in the end you felt it would benefit you. And I said, yes, Lord. He said, um, then before I could remind the Lord that I also said I would do it at the end because I knew I'd just seen him, the Lord asked me this piercing question. For my sake, would you be willing to go to them now at the start to free them? And give me the opportunity to bless them through this conference. I broke. I began weeping. I had allowed the hurt to lodge itself in my heart, and I had no clue. I had built walls and cut off areas in my heart and built layers around it without even realizing I was no longer in rhythm with his heart. But, Lord, I'm ministering to people. I'm giving words. I'm praying with people. I'm fasting. I'm doing all this stuff. But all I could do was be broken and weep to realize I was still out of rhythm with his heart because I was only willing to do it for my selfishness. Whether I was right or not, justified or not, I had become the selfish one. I was only willing to do it if I could benefit from it. Yet Jesus was willing to die for me without any knowledge of my sin. And while I was still hurting him, he was granting me grace and drawing me to him. It took the Lord breaking through the first layer and each layer one at a time as I finally agreed and relented at that level. He was the master physician applying the spiritual stint that now his blood that flowed on Calvary was able to now flow freely back to those blocked-off areas of my heart and began to let my heart 
get back in rhythm with his heart. Allowing that hurt to get lodged in my heart hampered my ability to be effective for the Lord without even realizing it. I didn't know it was there. But the Lord let me see, you can't really operate in me while you have this horizontal issue. We do, we do the vertical first, and then it ties to our horizontal. But when the horizontal gets out of whack, it alters our vertical at some point. So I absolutely went to them and was totally freed by it. So it, it wasn't a one-way street. I was also freed by it. But now I went with the idea to benefit them and not me. Now I can do as that lesson taught me, that I can own my past. I can remember it correctly. The past is what it was. That's how I remember it correctly. The past is what it was. Now, even though my relationship with them is not the same anymore, it doesn't change what it was to me at that time. So now you think back. See, what we do now, we look at the relationship how it is now, and then we have it skew the relationship all the way back to the beginning. Now, everything that was good along the way, we just threw it out. We cast it aside because we're looking at it from the vantage point of what we're seeing here. But to remember the past correctly is to remember it was what it was. So it doesn't change the benefits I got from them at the time because at the time, I did enjoy it. I was thankful. I was glad for it. It did bless me. So that's why the Lord had to put that reminder in the hard way to say you did enjoy the friendship, the good experiences at that time. Now, because you are willing to acknowledge it and tell them, regardless of the hurt, I actually was freed and freed them from the debt. That debt-to-debtor relationship was now handled. I canceled the debt. There was no more debt. So now, remember, sometimes the recipient of the debt the debt or is affected more than the person holding the debt. So now they had no more power, no more ability to do it. And now I could keep the good that I received from them without ever reliving the hurt or being controlled by it. And that's how we let the Lord help us take care of the matters of the heart. So thank you all so much. It's, it's 8.04. I don't know if the others are out. And hopefully Sister Trudy can uh, finish it up for you all the next two weeks, do a better job. But I just want to encourage y'all that the Lord has the ability to renew even the deadest relationship because he can speak to the tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. Remember, Jesus actually waited. So we need to make sure he's dead long enough that then when I call him out, there's no question. Because remember, they said, surely, Lord, by now he stinketh. That's the point. He wasn't just passed out. He was dead. Y'all could smell them. But guess what? It don't matter how much stink was on it. I can refresh it, make it new. I can bring that hard heart back to life again. We're going down to-